Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 39 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday the 10th of October. And Leon, what have we got to offer the listeners this week? Well, we start off with a great interview with Jen George, who's the founder and CEO of a company called OneShift. And they match up young candidates, job candidates with employers. And she talks all about the job market out there these days. Yeah. And her company is growing very, uh, very rapidly. She's talking about moving to the US and Europe. So, yeah, so let's have a chat with Jen George. I should add here that we spoke to Jen in a rather noisy laneway in uh, the central Melbourne, and so I apologise for the background noise. I think it's clear enough, or at least I hope so. Jen George, OneShift is a jobs network. Tell us about it. OneShift is a network that matches employees and employers instantly to jobs. Um, the jobs usually range from service space, so hospitality, retail, admin, um, call centres, customer service, anything like that. Um, the system's actually actually matched people and actually had somebody turn up to start work within 27 minutes of posting the job and that's $30 to the business. So from a business's point of view, it's saving time and money. We've got over 310,000 job seekers in Australia and 35,000 businesses. We're also um, in New Zealand, only a couple of months old with 500 businesses and 3,500 job seekers. We'll also be moving to the US in February, um, looking to expand over there. And so how does it actually work? We have a matching algorithm working on the back end. So we basically collect a whole heap of information from job seekers. So we're where you've worked, what your education history is, whether you have access to a vehicle, uh, your personality type, photo, you can even do a video and introduce yourself. And we actually allow businesses to post jobs on criteria that the, um, on the information that we've collected and it matches you to roles that are based off your work history. So this might be for a barista or a um, bartender, etc. Um, so from a business point of view, they get to post that job, see their matches, like when they Google blue car, you get blue cars. With this, you get bartenders in you know Melbourne CBD or, you know, whatever um, postcode you're really looking for, ready to work and you can start contacting them straight away. So the business will see who matches their needs and contacts them themselves? Yes. Yeah, and a job seeker can also ra- you know, raise their hand, so to speak, and say, I'm interested and I'm available and I want this job. So how long have you been going for? Two years, two months. What's the business model of it? How does it work? So f- for the monetization model, we actually take a $30 fee for a business to access the database. Um, so I guess a job placement fee of $30. The job seekers, it's free. Um, to sign up and um, yeah that's about it really. (laughs) One of the big issues at the moment is that university graduates can't get work at the moment they have to wait I mean what's your view about that? There's a lot of demand um, from kids coming or young adults coming out of um, education, doing three or four or even five years um, and not really having a lot of work experience. Um, with A lot of businesses that we actually speak to actually start looking at job seekers' history back in high school and see if they had a job, whether it was flipping burgers at McDonald's or sweeping the floor somewhere or nannying. They don't care. It's really starting to show that work ethic from the beginning. Um, then any sort of internships, cadetships or work experience or even just a first-time job in any sort of workforce when they're actually doing their university degree is really critical. Um, as much industry experience that you can expose yourself, the better. Even getting a mentor and even, you know, just catching up every couple of months and getting some experience or insight into their li- um, work lifestyle. So why aren't graduates picking up work? 
I think because there's a lot of people looking um, and businesses are really sifting through going, right, who's the best of the best? What can they bring to the table? We're even seeing um, graduates actually, this is a fake arm, just to clarify, they got a mannequin's arm, put it in a box and wrote a note, I'd give my right arm to work for you. So people are going above and beyond the norm to actually get roles. So they've spent all this time doing this education, but there's 30 other applicants who have that education as well. So then they look at work experience and they look at other things to actually make them stand out from the other applicants. Well, is it because there are so many job seekers on the market or is it because businesses are more picky? I think it's a bit of both. Participation rates are up, that's for sure, and people are out there looking um, and it's very competitive. I mean, in journalism, for example, think about how many students want an internship or cadetship or to come work at the major publications. Um, Then from the business's point of view, because there's just so much, um, I guess, more exposure um, to getting jobs, the internet, they can post jobs, they can talk about jobs, there's networking, there's just so many different avenues to find people these days that um, they've just got so much more to choose from so they can be a lot more pickier and I mean business culture is the thing at the moment and finding the right people is very important to a business. Do you do you give advice to students or anything like that? My advice is to actually get a job um, even if it's not uh, not as simply and blunt as go get one but you know do what you can to get some experience and get a job. Um, look at your work history, you know, is it going to make you stand out against others? Is trying to get something inter- industry specific going to help you stand out as well? So Find out what you want to do um, that's relevant to your um, education or your um, courses that you're doing at uni or a diploma, etc., and find somebody who's got some industry experience to help you out and really find what niche that you should be trying to get experience in. What about volunteering in roles? Yep, I think that's that impo- works. Well. Yes, I think that's important as well. Um, anything that you can get will add value. It's better than nothing and just your certificate. Of course, uh, unemployment now is up around six point four percent, and it's uh, likely to be heading up stronger. Uh, where do you, where does that leave? Um, I think once for us, it's actually um, a benefit for us. Um, well, from both sides, you kind of get from a business point of view they're looking to be a lot more agile in their recruitment process they're looking for more casual part-time shift-based employees to ramp up and ramp down to suit what's going on in the marketplace so from a business model it works for us from a candidate point of view um, we're definitely seeing a strong increase in the participation rates people are applying for roles that weren't normally Um, we spoke to a business uh, sorry a job seeker in Melbourne actually um, Tom Fleetwood he actually wasn't looking for a job last year because he was worried there was wasn't really much out there when he started applying for roles this year because his experience as a um, Sydney University of Melbourne student was that there is a lot more in the market now. Jen, how do you perceive the morale of these kids? I mean, somebody's studying medicine and he's going to wind up as a, a dishwasher in a restaurant. How does he take it? Um, I think it's just, look, at the end of the day, if you want to pay your bills, you can't always rely on someone else. You still need to pay your own bills, right? So um, I think you, you're just going to have to go through the process in your head and realise what the realisation is and do what you can to make ends meet, whether that is you know, um, doing some sort of internship or cadetship that isn't paying, then you're going to have to make sacrifices to be able to um, afford to take that time to de- dedicate to that thing. Do you, do you find do you find a more despair in the student population now, more desperation to get work? Yes. I think that's because um, there is a lot more... Um, realization of what people are willing to do to get a job i mean people are building websites to display their resume right you hand in a piece of paper with your work history on it versus somebody who's got a full-on game that you get to play and see you know what that person did during you know their last six years kind of look like a dull piece of paper <laughs> you know it is what it is so people are, get, are having to get creative they're getting creative and they're looking out of the, the square from what they can do so besides building websites what else do they do <laughs> well besides the fake arms in boxes as well um, we're seeing that people are actually turning up and singing we've seen people um, actually write excessive 
uh, like 18 page notes to them explaining why they're passionate about this business why they want to work for them what they can do and bring to the business we're seeing people who are actually um, working as an internship um, or even volunteering to just hang around the office so they can learn as much as they can about that business to show that they're actually interested in being there and they're dedicated to being there there's been some talk around certainly in victoria about people being given unpaid work um do you see any of that? Yes, I think there's uh, there's a very grey area um, with people doing unpaid work, and there is, I guess, the I guess the rule of thumb that we do is that if it's something that somebody should be paid to or it is already in the business being paid to do, then you shouldn't be solely responsible we're, for we're it. We're talking here about interns and yes. a growing growing tendency to just hire interns. Yeah, because they can get them for, to do a lot of the work for free. Or Yeah, so what, what we'll see is like somebody, um, they get delegated something to handle as an intern and they're relied upon to do something that generally somebody else who normally is getting paid to do that. And that's, I think, that grey area. Um, I can understand if they're assisting um, and kind of just helping out but still being guided and it's somebody else's sole responsibility who's being paid for that. Um, but you know, being doing that for free, it, there's a bit of a grey area and the liability on that, what actually gets produced is quite interesting as well. So do you talk to companies about interns? Yes, my sort of, I guess, rule of thumb is to tell them not to go get them uh, the interns to go get coffees because they're not learning anything from that. Anyone can order a coffee. Photocopying, I don't suggest that as well. I think anything that they can sit with somebody and actually learn the process and actually get something out of is going to be in the best interest of not only the intern but also the company because what they learn and develop and grow with, they are potentially high for the business and they know their systems and processes. Uh, do companies get that? Eight out of ten. You know, there are still people out there. I mean, there's, there's not a 100% consistency um, of people who kind of get that. I think some people still try to take advantage of the system any way you can. I mean, that's, I guess, the idea of business, to reduce costs as far as possible and get the best outcome. With unemployment rising, where do you see the future for the job market here? Look, I think um, from where we were last year, um, we're definitely um, in a much better position. But I think, you know, we're going to be up and down until next year. But by next year, I think we'll be in a much stronger position. Jen George, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, jobs are a crucial thing from the government down to uh, individuals in coming out of school. Yes, yes. Now, let's have a chat with Saul Eslake, and we're going to have a chat about negative gearing and the impact it's having on property prices. And Saul believes we have to do away with negative gearing, which is political dynamite. So let's have a chat with Saul. So there's like there's been some discussion of like what we're doing with negative gearing. What's your view about it? Well, my long-held view has been that negative gearing is one of a number of features of the Australian housing system that, despite what its defenders say, has served to inflate the price of properties to the detriment of would-be home buyers and possibly renters, as well as costing large amounts of revenue. And it would be best if it were removed from the tax system. Realistically, since there are now almost 15% of taxpayers for which you could read voters who have geared property investments, most of them negatively geared, no government or no party seeking to be in government could afford to alienate such a large percentage of the electorate. But I think a realistic proposition is that the existing arrangements be grandfathered and that from some announcement date, hopefully close at hand, the government would stipulate that no investments of any sort entered into after that announcement date would be eligible for negative gearing treatment. Instead, anyone who 
entered into an arrangement such that they spent more on interest than they gained in a given financial year in net rent or dividends would no longer be able to offset the excess of interest over income against their other taxable income, thereby reducing the amount of tax they pay in that year, but would instead have to carry any such excess forward against the ultimate capital gains tax liability that accrues when they sell the asset. That's the way the tax system works in both Britain and the United States. And in my view, it's the way the tax system ought to work here too. When you say grandfathering, over what period of time? Well, over as long as anyone who currently has an asset continues to hold it. Uh, I guess I'm replicating what was done with the introduction of a capital gains tax in 1985 by Paul Keating as treasurer in the Hawke government. When that was introduced, existing assets were grandfathered. That is, they weren't subject to capital gains tax on the grounds that when people bought them, there wasn't a capital gains tax. But every asset bought after that date became subject to the capital gains tax. People said at the time that that would cause major falls in the prices of assets like shares and property. That didn't happen. And now the capital gains tax is an accepted part of Australia's taxation system. I venture the same would happen if negative gearing were grandfathered for those who currently had it, but denied to any new investments after that date. And given that most investments are held for periods of, say, five to ten years before they're sold. If you did that, then within five to ten years, negative gearing would have largely disappeared from the Australian tax system. Defenders of negative gearing say it has boosted the construction and housing market. What's your view about that? Well, my view is that that's nonsense because 93% of geared investors into the property market buy an established property, not a new one. So overwhelmingly, what negative gearing does is to inflate the price of the existing housing stock rather than to induce new housing construction. If it was still the case, as it was in the mid-1970s, that geared investors overwhelmingly bought new properties, then you might be able to make a case for it. But that hasn't been true for well over 15 years and is there's no sign that it's changing at the moment. So uh, I think that's one of a number of fatuous and spurious arguments that are put by proponents of negative gearing that doesn't stand a moment's exposure to the facts. So what future do you see for negative gearing? I mean, there's obviously political issues here that government doesn't want to alienate a large part of the electorate, but the housing prices are just going through the roof. Well, yes, they are. And that's, I think, to the detriment of those who don't currently own property. And one of the political problems is, of course, that those who don't own property are a minority. And for all the hand-wringing that politicians and others engage in in public about the difficulties facing young would-be first-home buyers, the reality is that in any given year, there are only about 100,000 people who successfully make the transition to home ownership for the first time. They, of course, would welcome government actions that resulted in cheaper housing. But at any point in time, there are at least 8 million Australians who have at least one property. And the last thing they want is government action to reduce the price of housing. My point is that if you grandfather existing negatively geared arrangements, then you're not 
taking away from people who have something, something which they have and value, something which they can say with some justice they entered into on the assumption that existing laws would remain as they are. Uh, And so if you grandfather it, I don't see what the political objection is other than having to overcome the objections of those closely identified with the real estate industry who say, for example, look at what happened in the mid-1980s when the Hawke government temporarily abolished negative gearing. Uh, They argue that landlords went on strike, investment in rental housing collapsed and rents went through the roof. I say to that that that's an example of what Joseph Goebbels is supposed to have said long ago that if you tell a lie often enough and it's big enough, it becomes the truth. Because when you look at what actually happened in 1985, which very people, few people do, what you see is that rents went up in Sydney and Perth rather than across the nation as a whole, as they should have done if the suspension of negative gearing had been the cause of rising rents, because negative gearing was abolished in every city for that period of time. The reason why rents rose in Sydney and Perth during that period was because in both cities rental vacancy rates was 2% or lower and they would have gone up anyway notwithstanding the existence prior to then of negative gearing. It's just another illustration that negative gearing has done nothing to increase the supply of rental housing contrary to what its proponents continue to assert. You don't think it would affect investment in housing but would it have there's greater demand now for rental properties do you think there's any effect there well no i don't precisely because 93 percent of geared investors buy an existing property and therefore the effect of their activity in the housing market is overwhelmingly to push prices up not to induce an increase in supply of rental housing but let me throw two other propositions into this debate the first is to compare australia which has had negative gearing since the year dot with the united states which hasn't had negative gearing since about 1986 when they their tax system was reformed. And let me reiterate, in the United States, the tax system doesn't allow you to deduct against your other, for example, wage and salary income, any excess of interest over income associated with a property investment. You have to carry that forward against the liability you incur for capital gains tax when you sell the asset, unless you're a narrowly defined class of real estate professional. The US since that time has never had a rental vacancy rate on average of less than 5%. That says there's plenty of rental properties available for rent. We in Australia, by contrast, despite having negative gearing through that period, and despite negative gearing having become a more attractive proposition since the capital gains tax rate was halved in 1999, have never had a vacancy rate above 5%. So based on that comparison, I don't see how anyone can legitimately say that negative gearing has acted to boost the supply of rental housing. But even putting those facts to one side, let's take the argument put by proponents of negative gearing at face value. Suppose you did abolish it, even only for new investors, and that prompted investors to go on strike to sell their properties. Well, who would they sell them to? They wouldn't sell them to other landlords or other investors because they're meant to be on strike, discouraged by the removal of negative gearing. They would only be sold to people who currently want to buy houses but haven't been able to because of the competition they face from investors whose interest bills are subsidised through the tax system. So if that is the case, that what would happen would be those who are seeking to buy properties would be able to buy them. They wouldn't need to rent them because they would be living in houses that they then owned. The demand for rental housing would fall by as much as the supply of it allegedly would. What's the problem with that, I say? Now, the, the situation with housing has become quite unsustainable here. There have been warnings 
too from the RBA about uh, the situation. Uh, can you see the government or any government moving against negative gearing? Well, I would like to think they would because the arguments are increasingly compelling. The Reserve Bank is not, I think, saying that the housing market is in a bubble, uh, and they probably wouldn't use that emotive term and ill-defined term even if they did. But the word they did use in their financial stability review at the end of September was that the market was becoming unbalanced and they identified risks to the macro economy more so than the financial system if the trends they identified in that report continued. Now, in those circumstances, if you accept the Reserve Bank's analysis, and I haven't seen anyone seriously challenge it, then Australia as a whole has four options. We can do nothing. Nothing, which is what Alan Greenspan would have recommended in days gone by, arguing that you cannot tell when markets have become irrationally exuberant. You can only hope to clean up afterwards. That view, I think, has been discredited by the financial crisis and its aftermath. The second option, which you might call the Bank for International Settlements option, after the central bankers, central bank in Basel, which advocates this, is that if you think there's a bubble, you raise interest rates. That would certainly dampen investor demand for housing, but it would also have an adverse impact on would-be home buyers and on small businesses, among others, because as the Reserve Bank also identifies, the rest of the economy is still growing at a below-trend pace and needs the support of low interest rates. The third possibility, which is the one the Reserve Bank is canvassing, are so-called macro-prudential measures. Despite the Reserve Bank's previous depiction of macro-prudential Prudential measures as a 21st century word for mid-20th century forms of regulation that didn't work and which distorted the financial system. The Reserve Bank, I think, is saying that they do not want to copy measures that have been used, for example, in New Zealand or Britain, which may serve to dampen the housing market and housing prices, but do so at the expense of first-home buyers, who are not the cause of the problem, rather than at the expense of investors who are. So although they haven't spelled it out in detail, it would appear that the Reserve Bank's thinking about requiring or getting APRA to require uh, tighter or more rigorous interest rate buffer stress testing for investment loans, or possibly requiring banks to hold more capital against interest-only loans, which are much more favoured by investors than they are by owner-occupiers. The problem with those measures is that they might not work either. For example, there's no guarantee that banks, even if they were required to hold more capital against interest-only loans, would actually seek to recover that by charging higher interest rates. And even if banks did charge higher interest rates on loans to investors or interest-only loans, half of that cost is subsidised away by the tax system through negative gearing. Which brings me to option four, which is to, as I suggest, uh, whilst grandfathering existing negatively geared arrangements, since they're not adding to the cost of housing once they're entered into, barring new investors in all assets, not just property, from accessing those tax provisions. That would amount to an increase in the after-tax interest rate for investors but would not have any impact on anybody else in the housing market or elsewhere, problem solved at no cost or disadvantage to anyone that we shouldn't be seeking to hurt. And it would also boost government revenues. It would boost government revenue, though obviously not as much as getting rid of negative gearing altogether, which would raise about $5 billion on my estimates per annum, but at 
is politically unrealistic. Uh, it would also, of course, allow the government to portray it realistically and truthfully as a measure designed to help first home buyers because they'd no longer face competition from investors who have their funding costs subsidised. And it could also be portrayed as a measure that improves the equity and efficiency of the tax system and hence would be an effective response to the by the government to the criticism it's faced since the budget that the budgetary measures by focusing mainly on low and middle income health Solds is unfair. So let's like, thank you very much. Thanks very much for letting me put all that. Sol's very passionate about that. He said he rested negative gearing is really bad and dangerous. Well, uh, he has some very good points. Very interesting. And now the news. Leon, what do we got? Well, let's start off with the International Monetary Fund slightly lowering its outlook for global economic growth this year and next, mostly because of weaker expansions in Japan, Latin America and Europe. The IMF says the global economy will expand 3.3% this year. That's one-tenth of a point below what it forecasts in July. And it says world growth should pick up to 3.8% in 2015. But in the US, uh, employers have advertised the most job openings in nearly 14 years, although the pace of hiring fell compared to the previous month. Now, the Labor Department said available jobs rose 230,000 to 4.84 million in August. But... And... and that resulted in the most openings since January 2001, but total hiring in August actually fell 294,000 to 4.6 million, and that was driven by declines in construction and retailing, which suggests there's a potential mismatch between wages employers are willing to pay and the skills of workers available to be hired. Yeah, and we're beginning to see a trend where sort of the high end of people, high tech people and things like that, uh, their jobs are being overtaken by automation and big data bases, and uh, but the gardeners and the uh, the baristas and whatnot seem to be fairly secure. Uh, yes, uh, big data and, and also outsourcing. Absolutely. And meanwhile, in Germany, industrial production fell 4% from July. That's the biggest decline since January 2009. And there are some economists who now are talking about recession in Germany, which is the engine room of Europe's economy. The Ukraine thing and the threat to energy, of course, has caused a lot of problems in the bush. And to Australia, and a massive spending burden threatens to tip the nation into decades of deficits, according to new government findings that will be released early next year to jolt Parliament and the public into accepting another wave of budget reforms. And setting a new strategy in the political fight over difficult savings, Joe Hockey, the Treasurer, has decided to hold back the official analysis to maximise its impact on national debate when Parliament resumes in February. And that's going to set off a debate over our long-term challenges by feeding into the tax reform white paper, which will look at things like the GST and influencing the Federation white paper. That's right. It looks as though GST is going to have to go up. That's right. That's a tough one for the government. Absolutely. Global economic woes have forced the Abbott government to cut its budget outlook. The mid-year budget update will take a hit from slowing world growth and falling commodity prices and Treasurer Joe Hockey says the government is going to have to rewrite the forecast to account for lower prices for iron ore and coal as the impact on the nation's major exports flow through to growth and revenue estimates in the mid-year economic and fiscal outlook. I, I remember when this happened in December 2012 to Wayne Swan and Joe Hockey getting stuck into Wayne Swan. Yeah, <laughs> shoes on the other foot now. That's right. Joe Hockey's not actually quantifying the impact on his budget, uh, which aims to improve last year's $48.5 billion deficit uh, to $2.8 billion over four years but he's confirming that they're looking at more savings. 
and Treasury estimates that a fall in export prices at four percentage points greater than expected is going to translate into a $2.6 billion increase in this year's deficit and $5.4 billion increase next year. I think we're going to have deficit for the next dec- decade. Well, they're saying we've got weaker company tax. Personal income tax might also come in below budget with the latest official survey showing wages rising at 2.6% against what the budget forecasts of 3%. And uh, the May budget was also counting on a big recovery in superannuation taxes that might be hard to achieve unless share markets recover. Yeah, and they've also got the thing with the ABS uh, changing the way it counts uh, unemployment figures or employment figures, and I think there's a bit of a shock going to be in there too. I think so too. Now, uh, Joe Hockey this week went to the US and he was urging investors over there to turn their sights on Australian asset sales and infrastructure projects as part of the government's wave of privatisation. So chief executives from Citigroup, Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan Chase met Joe Hockey in New York to camp as potential deals and discuss a global push to increase private support for public projects. He wants the US funds to explore privatisation and infrastructure projects in Australia. Maybe to offset some of the Chinese investment. I don't know what the way that would be. Well, yeah, yeah, indeed, indeed. And uh, meantime, uh, it looks like we're going to have a new Treasury head, a guy called John Fraser. He is uh, one of only a few top-ranked UBS executives to survive the Swiss bank giant's 2008 near-death experience, and he looks set to replace Martin Parkinson as the nation's leading economic bureaucrat. Fraser is 63 years old. He's also very wealthy. Oh, extremely wealthy. Uh, Saul Leslake uh, described him as an inspired choice. Well, he spent more than 20 years at uh, Zurich-based UBS. He was chairman of its global asset management business. And so it's going to satisfy Treasurer Joe Hockey's goal of bringing his department closer to the real-world reality of markets. He's also being driven by Tony Abbott. He's based in London. He retired late last year as Chief Executive Officer of the Asset Management Business after 12 years in the helm. He trained as an economist at Monash in 1972. He's actually worked in government. He spent more than two decades at Treasury, including Deputy Secretary from 1990 to 1993, which followed a three-year posting to Washington at the height of former Labor Treasurer Paul Keating's era. And in 1993, he joined Swiss Banking Corporation in Australia, which was later merged into UBS. And he was also also a member of Peter Costello's Audit Commission. Now, um, heavyweight fund manager IFM Investors has taken a $685 million write-down on its Pacific Hydro Renewable Energy business because the adverse impact of the Abbott government's Warburton review, weaker electricity demand and tax changes in Chile. And IFM investors have $50 billion in assets under management. They're owned by 30 pension funds with more than 5 million Australian members. And that includes funds like Australian Super, Cebus and Host Plus. The hefty valuation changes of Pacific Hydro and they Pacific Hydro runs hydro, wind, solar and geothermal projects in Australia, Brazil and Chile. And the changes there were driven partly by businessman Dick Warburton's review into the renewable energy target. And that report is now with the government for its consideration. Everyone's watching that. What's going to happen with renewable energy? Absolutely. They've got to do something about that. Well, there's millions of dollars at stake here. Now, the RBA has kept the official cash rate on hold, a record low of 2.5% at its October board meeting. Everyone was expecting it. And it's remained steady at 2.5% for the past 14 months. That's the longest period of interest rate stability since 2003. Job advertisements rose 0.9% according to the ANZ Jobs Advertisement Series. That's the fourth monthly rise in seasonally adjusted terms. And job advertisements are now 7.9% higher than last year. And that suggests on one hand the conditions in the labour market are improving. But that said, 
the unemployment is expected to come in at about 6.2%, and the International Monetary Fund expects Australia will have the worst jobless rate in the Asia-Pacific, second only to the Philippines, Gary, over the next two years. Yeah, we're not all that far behind the Philippines either. Yeah, and they're predicting a rate of 6.2% in 2014, 6.1% in 2015. Only the Philippines is higher with uh, rates of 6.9, 6.8%. And it expects Australia, the IMF expects Australia to grow by 2.8% in 2014, 2.9% in 2015. Now, that's below its long-term average of 3.25% to lift it, which is a level you need to lift employment. In other words, uh, we're in a bit of a hole. Yes, activity in Australia's construction sector expanded for the fourth month, running in September, according to a survey from the Australian Industry Group, signalling the industry's strongest pace of expansion nine years since the survey's inception. And the performance of the construction index rose 59.1 points in September. That's up 4.1 points in 55. But consumer confidence has suffered its first setback in three weeks, sparked by concerns about household finances. And the ANZ Roy Morgan weekly consumer confidence index fell 1% to 112.5 points in the first week of October. So that's not good. Now, the big news, of course, for the week was what's happening with BHP, Billet and Gary. And they're planning to overtake Rio Tinto to become Australia's lowest cost iron ore producer. And the world's biggest miner says it isn't going to build a new mine for at least 30 years as it cuts costs and pursues productivity gains as its four existing Pilbara centres. And it now says it's going to produce iron ore, excluding the cost of shipping and government royalties, for less than $20 US a tonne in the medium term. That's remarkable because where are they now? About 50. It would be a 25% reduction compared with results achieved in 2014. Uh, the company ex- plans to expand its exports by 65 million tonnes to 290 million tonnes by the end of 2017. What's interesting, Gary, is that automation is going to play a big role here. Uh, BHP is now trialling nine driverless trucks in its Jimble Bar mine and one autonomous drill rig at Yandy. Driverless trains are still to come, and the mine is likely to trial these before too long. And once automated drill rigs are brought in across the board, they'll see significant productivity gains, but that means hundreds of job losses, Gary. Yeah, well, they've already cut, what, 3,500? They're going to cut more. Uh, in FY15, BHP expects a 245 million tonnes produced. Out of, out of the uh, 245 million tonnes produced, 27 will be hauled by automated trucks. And by FY19, it expects 40% of the total productive movement will be hauled autonomously. And that means a lot more miners will be out of work and a much more efficient BHP because, let's face it, Gary, automated trucks don't have drivers who need to eat or sleep. That's right, 24-hour trucking. Yeah, they go non-stop, hour after hour. Yeah, well, as we were saying uh, elsewhere, the rise of technology is not necessarily good for uh, employment. No, and that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon, that's great, and uh, we'll be back next week. That's right, and uh, next week we're going to have a great interview with uh, Luke Jex from Naked Wines. He's got a very interesting idea of how to sell wines. We'll be talking to him. In the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizz or on Facebook. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.